Good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at Fellowship Church, and it is so good to be with you. Let me add my greeting to the ones you've already received. And if you're a first-time guest with us, we are just delighted that you're here. We're glad that you're here, and this is the place for you. It is good to trust in the Lord. It is good to hear from his word. This is the part in our service where we take significant time to hear from God's word. And so as we prepare for that, would you join me as we pray and ask God to open his word to us that that we would be transformed by it. So let's pray together. Lord and God, you are good. You are good to us. And your word is good and precious. Thank you for the gift of this time where we can come to you as your people and worship you by hearing from your word by feeding on it and receiving a feast of precious and sweet truth from you that gives us life and hope and peace. So God, would you be glorified as we look at your word and would our minds be upon you as we think about it. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his 2021 book, entitled Land, the British journalist and author Simon Winchester shares an interesting story that fascinated me. He talks about doing something he had never done before in his life, and that was purchasing land for the first time. He, he records this. He says, he bought 123 and a quarter acres of forested and rocky mountainside in Dutchess County, New York. The first time that he had owned property, and he said he would walk in the forest, my forest now, as often as I could. And he purchased this land not to live there, not to really do anything with it, but to have a piece of land. As a British man, he said his family had never owned property. They had just rented, and he was the first one to purchase and own a piece of property. And it struck me because of the significance of Land, having a place that we call our own. Now, as we continue in our series in Joshua, this idea, this concept of land is going to be incredibly important. We're going we're to come back to it over and over again. The idea that the people of God, after such a long time, received what God had promised to them, this land that was to be for them. And so as we continue in our series, we're going to look at the last part of Joshua chapter 8. And we're going to look at what is it that the people of Israel did as God's promise of the land began to unfold for them. So if you have a Bible, if you would turn with me, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 30. And this will be up on the screen as well. God's word says this, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, He wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourners as well as native-born, with their elders and their officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before before the Levitical priest, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. 
So as we continue in this story of God giving the people the land, you think about where they've come from. They've entered in finally the second generation after the first generation wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They go into the land. They consecrate themselves. They cross the Jordan. They uh, follow God's uh, commands and they, they go around Jericho and Jericho is defeated. Then they go to Ai and they're defeated at Ai because of sin, because they had held back some of the things that belonged to God. Then God had told them what to do, so they, they purified the camp, they devoted the things to the Lord, and then they conquered Ai. That's what we looked at last time. And now we have this section, this story. So what happens here? Let's just work our way through it. So the first thing that it says is that Joshua built an altar. Now, altars aren't something that we as secular Westerners are generally that familiar with. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you had a conversation on a Monday with your coworkers? Like, hey, how was your weekend? You know, oh yeah, it was great. Yeah, we got some things done. We built an altar. We sacrificed some things on it. Yeah, it was great. How about you? You know, we don't have that kind of, uh, as part of our life. That's not something that we as modern Western people do. But in scripture, the building of altars is very important. You see it all over the place in the Old Testament. It's a very common part of worshiping God in the Old Testament. And that's really the purpose. The purpose is you set up this altar and you offer sacrifices to the Lord on it. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Now, if we think about that, okay, so we don't really, we come to, we see he builds an altar. We don't really do that. We don't really understand that that well. So we want to take some time and think about what does that actually mean? What is the significance of altars in scripture? And it's good to to go to the first time that an altar is mentioned. And that is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. When Noah and his family get off the ark. After more than a year on the ark, they are back on dry land, firmly on hard soil. And Noah builds an altar to the Lord as an act of worship. The next occurrence, actually, of an altar being built is a passage of scripture we looked at last time, and we're going to look at again this morning, and that is Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is called by God to leave his home, leave his country, leave his family, and go to this land that, he, that God says he would show him, and when he gets there, he builds an altar, Genesis 12, 7 and 8. And that was at the time when, when he built the altar, and God said to him at that time, I will give this land to your offspring. And so there's two examples there of Abraham building an altar. One of those we looked at last week was right where the battle of Ai happened. So we have these two occurrences. And now we have in Joshua 8, Joshua builds an altar. And it's specific. As we get to this, it says, at that time. So what does that mean? It means then or after that. So after the battle of Ai is finished, the next thing that happens is building an altar. And it's highlighted. You know, there's a lot of places in scripture where you just read a story and then it just says, and then this happened, and then that happened, and it just continues on. But this specifically says it was after the battle of Ai. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant for a couple of uh, reasons. If you remember last week, As we were looking at the battle of Ai, we looked at some passages from scripture. One was Exodus 17. The parallel passage when Moses was still in charge and the people had just come out of Egypt and they're fighting with Amalek. Remember that story? And Moses has to hold his hand up. And as long as he holds his hand up, the people of Israel are winning. And when he gets tired and he puts his hand down, the people of Israel are losing. And Joshua is the one fighting. And they win that battle. Remember, that was really connected with what we read in the first part of chapter 8. So they win that battle. What happens right after that? What does it say in Exodus 17? Moses built an altar. So we see a pattern happening. Noah, he gets off the ark. First thing he does, build an altar. Abraham gets into the land. First thing he does after hearing from God, builds an altar. Moses, God delivers them through battle. First thing he does, build an altar. So Joshua is specifically stating this is the thing to do. As we walk with the Lord, as he delivers us, as he speaks to us, we build an altar. So Joshua is saying, we did the same thing. 
God fought for us at Ai. We were victorious, so we build an altar. And they worshiped the Lord there, just like Abraham had done. So that's the right thing to do. And that's why Joshua is so specific about this timing. Then he says specifically where they built it. So they built it on this place called Mount Ebal. So in addition to the specific timing, there's a specific location that is given. So I want to show this. I have a little map here. I know it's kind of sometimes hard to see. But here we have, this is kind of a little bit zoomed in on the Holy Land. But you can see the yellow line. That's where they crossed over the Jordan. They go to Gilgal, consecrate themselves. They conquer Jericho. Then they go across to the battle at Ai. And then here they had to travel up the green line from Ai to Mount Ebal. It's a very specific spot, very specific location. And that's where they built an altar. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the 80s, there was actually an excavation. You can go to that next slide. And there's a picture of what an altar looks like. And this specific one was actually discovered. You know where that is? Mount Ebal. So this very well could be, of course, we can't know for sure, but this very well could be the altar that Joshua built. At that time, it would have been covered, so it would have been a flat at the top, but they would have had a ramp to go up there, and they offer sacrifices. You get a sense for the size of that and that place. Now, why is it so specific in that place? Why does God tell them to go to that place? If you remember the map, it's, that's a long distance. It's not like, okay, we finished the battle. Let's build an altar right here. That distance is about 20 miles. So why do they go to that specific place? And why does Joshua tell us that it is that specific place? Well, there's a particular reason. And the reason is because this is according to God's command. God told them where to build it. So if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 27, and we're going to look at verses 8, or I'm sorry, 1 through 8, Deuteronomy 27, God's command to them. So let's look at this together. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I commanded you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings. And you shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So you see there... God has commanded them that. Now, let's think about this. So Deuteronomy, this is when, when Moses is re-giving the law. He gives it to a second generation before they enter in. God had given it to them in Exodus when they first entered into the covenant on Mount Sinai. And then he gives it again after the wandering for a second generation. And that's what this is. So God is specifically telling them, he's preparing them. Before you go into the land, this is what you should do when you get into the land. And so God specifically tells them to build it on Mount Ebal. So as we read this, we can be excited and happy because Joshua and the people are being obedient. You would think that's what we should expect in Scripture, right? We should expect from these guys that they're being obedient. But if you've read Scripture, if you've been following along, you know that's usually not the case. Why is that? Why can we relate to that? Because that's often not the case in our lives. But we see that they are, in fact, obedient to what God had called them to do. And specifically, he gives them instructions that they're supposed to split into two groups, half the tribes on one side, half the tribes on the other side. So one group is on this mount, Mount Gerizim. The other is on 
Mount Ebal, and there's a little valley between them. And that's exactly what Joshua has them do. So he's following this. It's like exactly what God said. He goes, oh, this is what was written. This is what was commanded. This is what we're going to do. We go 20 miles. We set it up here. Some on this side, some on that side. Now, it's interesting. Let's go back to that map and just look. We look at those two two mountains. I don't know if you can see that at the top. Mount Ebal is at the top and Mount Gerizim below that. What's between those two? If you can't read it, it's a little city. It's a, it's a village called Shechem. Now, this comes up quite a few places in Scripture. But interestingly, one of the places that that comes up in Scripture is Genesis chapter 12. We looked at that last week. Let's look at it again because it's very significant. This is a significant part of Scripture. So Genesis 12, 6 and 7 said this. And Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Morah, At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. That is the specific place where God called to Abraham and revealed to him that he was going to give this land to his descendants. Remember how we saw that last week where the battle of Ai, where the uh, ambush was set, was in the exact place, the next altar that Abraham made? It's almost like they're following a pattern, only in reverse. And here, this particular spot is where God commands them to build an altar and the people to be on either side. Now, another passage of scripture, we're going to go to a lot of different things, a lot of different places here in the Old Testament, because this is a, such a significant event, it connects with a lot of passages of scripture. So this is also in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting at verse 29. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Morah? Now, what's interesting about that is it makes it even more specific, the location. Now, picture this. Why are we going into all this? Because I want you to picture the scene that's happening here. So they split the people into two groups. They're up on the foot of the mountain. And in the middle, it says in Joshua 8, is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what's in the middle? This specific spot, Shechem, next to the Oaks of Morah, the exact spot where God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, to your offspring. And now, 400 years later, you can picture this, this great nation, this great people, 12 tribes who are descended from Abraham on either side. And what's right in the middle The Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the very presence of God with them. God had promised to give them the land, and now they're there. 400 years later, what they had waited for. A whole host, a whole nation. When Abraham, when it was just him, now they can separate into these two tribes. So many people. And again, let's look back at at Genesis 12. This story the commission, the promise that God gave to Abraham. The first part of the chapter, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, before he had changed his name, which later it gets changed to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then it goes in and he goes and he builds the altar in that place. That's the promise that God made to Abraham 400 years before it is beginning to be fulfilled in this place. The same spot, the same land, the same grove of trees where the first altar was built. By Abraham when he comes into the land. 
and where the first altar was built when Joshua and the people come into the land. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing how faithful God is to his promises? He doesn't just say vaguely, well, I'm going to give you this land somewhere, sometime, some people. God is very specific. And he is faithful down to the very letter. And here they are. It's amazing. Amazing what you can get out of a verse and a half of scripture, isn't it? Then it says in, back in Joshua 8, verse 31, specifically how God had commanded this. It says, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. You see that repeated. He keeps mentioning, we're doing what God said. We're following God. We are being obedient. Do you think they learned the lesson from AI? Do you think they've kind of gotten it? Like, oh yeah, if we're disobedient to God, if we hold back a little bit, if we steal just a tiny bit from God, then we'll fail. But if we follow what God has said, then we will have success. So they are following God. They're being obedient. But there's some significant things here. It mentions how they were following God. How had God communicated this? It says that it was written in a book or scroll. Now we might take that for granted, but it's actually very significant. Because God had written down his law. Remember back to chapter 1, the very beginning of this book that, the kind of, that sets the, the, the scene, sets the tone for what the whole book is going to be about. Joshua 1.7 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Now again, we take that for granted, but it was written down. That is the first time that God's commandments were written to his people. Before that, you know, we see it. God comes to Abraham and he says, go. God comes to him and he says, I'm going to give you this land. Now, after 400 years, they have a book. It's written. They don't have to depend on the prophet anymore. They don't have to say, well, Moses, you better go up and find out what God's wa- God wants and come back and tell us. They have it all written, specifically what God wanted them to do. And then that becomes important because we see what does Joshua do when he builds this altar? He writes the law on it. He then takes it and he speaks it to the people. He's telling them, follow what God has said. Now we see Joshua as the true successor of Moses. Speaking to all the people and leading the people in obedience to what was written. That's what Joshua's role is. So he builds this altar, it specifically says, of uncut stones. Now, what does that mean? There's a passage in Exodus, we don't have to turn there, but Exodus 20, 24 and 25, that's where Moses builds an altar on Mount Sinai, the beginning of the covenant. And it specifically says there that if they cut the stones, if they worked them with tools, they would profane them. And that that means to make them unholy. So again, God, in connection to that, when they go into the land, he says, make this altar out of whole stones, not to cut the stones. Now, why is that? I think there's two reasons for that, if you think about it. So think about what that is. It's really helpful when you read scripture, if you're trying to understand it, to picture it. Think about it. Like visualize it in your mind as you're studying it. What does it mean that they're using uncut stones? One, it means they're whole. The stones are whole. I think the second thing is that they are holy, which means set apart. They're distinct from the altars of the people in the land. If you think that this land, that these are the only altars there, you are mistaken. Because all the pagan people worship their gods with altars. And they would carve them ornately and they would put pictures on them and scenes on them and all kinds of stuff. This would be totally different. The people in the land would look at that and say, what a weird people they are. They didn't do anything with their stones. They just put them together. And then they wrote all over them. No pictures. What does this God look like? What kind of God is it? You know, is it the God of birds or is it a God of valleys or hills? It's a God of the book. It's a God of his word. So they are whole, like the sacrifices, by the way. The first sacrifices that were offered on them, we'll talk about this a little bit more, were whole animals. 
The stones are whole. And they're also holy, set apart, distinct. So I think that's why they're uncut stones. Because they offer the peace offering. And they offered the burnt offering there. Now, it was fascinating to me, the first time that peace offering is mentioned is also in Exodus 20, 24. And the connection between when God initiated the covenant with his people on Mount Sinai, right after they had come out of Egypt, and to when they go into the land, they are offering these sacrifices. Now, if altars are kind of not common to us, offerings are just as strange to us. So as we think about it in the Old Testament, all the kind of offerings, and you can read all these, and it's kind of hard to understand. I want to help us kind of think through that. And as we look at that, there are at least five categories of offerings in the scriptures in the Old Testament. So I want to just walk through those for us a little bit. So the different kinds of offerings that exist. First is gifts to God. These are acts of worship. So you can bring an offering. It's just a gift to bring to the Lord out of appreciation. That's the first kind. So this is a category, a broad category. There are gifts to God. There are also offerings of communion, fellowship with God, the, the union that they have, the relationship that they have. So there are offerings of communion. Then there are offerings of consecration. Now, these are the ones that are closely connected with blood. So you can read in Leviticus all these different things about the animal blood. And in some places, it's a few places, that consecration is actually the blood is sprinkled on the people, mostly the priests. They are consecrated to God. And there are guilt offerings. Guilt offerings, this is a hard category for us to understand, but guilt offerings resolve the violation of the holy things. When you have things that are holy, they can be violated. They can be mistreated. If that happens, how do you resolve it? That's what the guilt offerings are for. Then there are sin offerings, which are for forgiveness and cleansing of contamination. That's one of the things we forget, is when something becomes sinful and it's contaminated, that that can spread. And so there has to be cleansing and forgiveness. Now, as we look at those categories, the last three are the ones that we think of the most when we think about the Old Testament. We think about reading that and you think of those things, the consecration, the guilt offerings, and the sin offerings. But in this passage, in Joshua 8, what we actually have are the first two. Gifts to God and offerings of communion, of fellowship. So we have the burnt offering and the peace offering. Now, these two very often go together. You see that in Exodus chapter 20 and a lot of other places in Scripture that these two go together. They're different offerings. So let's talk about those a little bit. The burnt offering, if we were going to put it in these categories, the burnt offering would go in the category of gifts to God. That's what it is. It's an act of worship. You bring this offering. It's an animal that's brought usually, and it is offered all together. The whole thing is burnt. None of it is kept back. They put the whole thing on the altar. The whole thing is burnt. This is why it's often translated as a whole burnt offering. I think that's better because it helps us picture it. You take an animal, the whole thing goes on the altar. The fire consumes the whole thing. The smoke and everything, the fire goes up to heaven. And it's a picture as though God had consumed it. You're giving it to him and he's received it. It's a gift to God. It's an act of worship. So that's the burnt offering. And then you have the peace offering. So if we put that in the category, the peace offering would go in the category of communion or fellowship with God. Now, in these cases, part of the animal is offered to God. The fat portion, sometimes some others. And other parts are eaten by the people. Remember that in Deuteronomy. He says, you shall offer these sacrifices and you shall eat. We don't think about this that much. We think about the offerings that where God consumes all of it. But in these parts, part goes to God, part goes to the people. It's a feast. You're eating meat together. It's fellowship. It's like a fellowship meal with the Lord and the people. It's a celebration. That's what this one is. I just want to read a couple of quotes that will help solidify this in our minds because it is kind of just different categories for us. It says, The distinctive feature of the peace offering was the fact that the offerers characteristically ate most of the meat as part of a communal meal before the Lord. Only the fat and the blood went directly to the Lord on the altar. Now these two 
the burnt offering and the peace offering, they are allowed and commanded, as we see here, on what we would call solitary altars, which is for this purpose. That's what these are. Where they set up an altar, it's not, uh, it's not the, the place. They have the, they have the tent of meeting. They have all that whole sacrificial system. This is separate than that. It's a solitary altar. And in these places, they were allowed to offer these offerings. And these are the, the specific offerings that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 27. Now, just another quote here that talks about this. The point of eating was to enact the bond of relationship that had been established between God and his people. Whenever such an offering was presented, it reenacted the same bond and could have the effect of calling the people to renewed covenant loyalty to the Lord and to one another. So what are they doing here? It's just this short statement. They offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. We go, I don't know what that means and move on. But they knew what that meant. They're offering a gift to the Lord. They're having a meal with the Lord. They are affirming the covenant and celebrating a fellowship meal with God. Why? Because they're celebrating God had fulfilled his promise. 400 years. Have you ever waited for something for a long time? You've never waited for something 400 years. They've wandered in the wilderness a long time. Do you think any of those people, do you think even Joshua was like us and maybe thought, I wonder if this is ever going to happen? God, when is this ever going to happen? And now it has begun to happen and they're celebrating. I think that's something worth celebrating, don't you? In the very place where their forefather Abraham was faithful to God, followed God by faith, and God gave him the promise, and now he's fulfilling it. And they're having a celebration and a fellowship meal with God and reaffirming their covenant. This is our God. We are his people. He is fulfilling our promises. Now, that's something I could get behind. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that I go, I don't know that I would want to experience that. This is one I'd say, yeah, I'd want to experience that. Food, barbecued food, by the way. (laughs) Celebration, blessing, because God is faithful. Sometimes I think we as Christians are way too sad as people. We have the promises of God. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with his people. We should celebrate more often. So this is a joyous thing. And it specifically mentions that. Deuteronomy 27. He says, when you eat, rejoice. Celebrate what God has done. Now, what's another thing that's central to this fellowship, this covenant relationship, this ceremony? Well, one of the things that's central to it is the written word of God. The written word of God. Now, think about this. Joshua reads it. He's made a copy. He writes it on the altar and he recites it to all the people. The whole law. Now, some people estimate, and this is in English, so I don't know how it would be different in Hebrew, but that if you took the five books of Moses, that's what they had, the first five books of the Bible, and you read it, it would take about 14 hours. That's a long time. You know, we've had some long scripture readings in this sermon, you know, went through a whole chapter and you go, oh, it was a lot long. Uh, Nothing compared to this. But he reads it, and I think that's what he did. Now, if it was only the book of Deuteronomy, it would be about two and a half hours. But I think he read all of the five books of Moses, which is a long time. But the people are listening. They're celebrating. Maybe they're eating while it's happening. I don't know. But think about what he's reading. At one point, they're sitting there, you know, enjoying the food, and they're hearing him read, and they get to Genesis chapter 12. And it said, and Abraham followed God in obedience, and he went to this place, the Oaks of Moreh. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's still trees here. And he made an altar to the Lord. And the Lord said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And they start thinking, that's us. We're here. God's giving it to us. This is amazing. That's what they're hearing. And they're hearing about God delivered the people out of Egypt. And they're hearing about crossing. They go, oh, crossing the Red Sea. I remember when we crossed the Jordan. It's not quite as big, but that's amazing. And how the people were unfaithful to God at Sinai. They disobeyed him. They go, oh, yeah, we know what that's about. 
but how God was faithful to them. They're hearing all of this. Think about that and that celebration. What's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of this written word? What's the purpose of reading all of this? For them to know the faithfulness of God so that they would be obedient to God. The centrality of his word that he's given them. It's central to their celebration. It's central to their worship because it's central to this idea of the promise. It's central to them to know how to obey God. If they don't have it, they wouldn't know. And if they didn't read it, they wouldn't know. If they didn't follow it, Joshua could have said, forget going 20 miles to Ebal. Let's just do it right here. But he would have been unfaithful. So they have to hear it and they have to know it. And then it talks about them with the blessings and the curses. You go, what's that all about? Well, again, Deuteronomy chapter 27. We're going back to just a little bit of this. I would encourage you, if you have a chance to just read through the whole thing, we're just going to read a little bit of it. This is right after he's told them, when you go in, you build this altar. And then this is the beginning of it. And he, uh, he starts to, to tell them what they should do. And so he says <clears throat> that you, should, you separate them out. They have to have the blessings and the curses. And then they actually proclaim these things. They read them out. It says, curse be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands, by the hands of a craftsman. And sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And then cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. And it goes on and on and on. We don't have to read the whole thing. But imagine that. You have two groups of people. They're, they're listening to this. And then they rehearse. They recite these blessings and these curses. And think about that back and forth. The group. And they say, cursed be the one. And everybody says, Amen. And they go through this whole thing. They're ratifying the covenant and the consequences. As God set before them, if you obey me, you have blessing. You have the land. If you disobey, this is what will happen. And they're joining in that. They say, yes, amen. This is what we are living in. This whole gathering. He specifically says assembly. Assembly of people. And then this interesting language. Did you you notice that? Did it strike you? The women and the little ones and the foreigners. You go, what's that about? You know, when you see those things in scripture, you can ask that question. What's that about? Like if it strikes you, you go, huh, maybe I should figure out why that's there. It's actually the exact same language as Deuteronomy 31, which is the end of this section. It specifically says those same things in that same order. Again, get the point. They're being obedient. It's this whole group of people and assembly. And there he tells them they have to do this, not just when they come into the land, but every seventh year. Every seven years, you have a big gathering and you read all the law to all the people. So they don't forget. The word is central to this gathering of people. And it specifically says in two places, and the foreigners who were with you. Those who have come along and become a part of Israel. Think about that. There are foreigners in their midst. And you go, Canaanites, they're unclean. And you go, oh, is this like going back to Achan? Like they had, you know, they kept some of the things back. Is this a bad thing? Maybe you go, uh oh. No, this isn't bad because actually it's a fulfillment of Genesis 12 3. When God said to Abraham, what does he say? I'm going to make you a great nation, give you this land. You will be a blessing to who? All the nations. Because that's what they were supposed to be if they were fulfilling their purpose a blessing to the nations. And you see it fulfilled here. Now think about this. We know for sure from scripture, at least one Canaanite family is present in this gathering. Rahab and her family. There may have been others because scripture does that, right? It give you one example. There may have been several families. We don't know, but we know there's one. Think about that for a second. Rahab and her family in this gathering, hearing perhaps for the first time, the law of God and the promises of God and going, This whole inheritance, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who promised this 400 years ago, this is what we're a part of? Wow. Picture that. This picture that God is blessing through this covenant people. He is blessing the nations. So we know this is not like an ethnic cleansing. It's not like God's like, I hate those people. I'm just going to wipe them all out because he's delivered them. It's not about what ethnicity somebody is. It's about whether that person is holy, that is purified by God or not, obedient or disobedient. God is fulfilling his promises. 
and blessing the nations. All right, so that's what's happening in a passage like this. So you read this and you go, okay, now I think I I understand what's happening. How do we apply passages like this, though? You think about that, you read it, and you say, okay, how do we apply this? Should we all go outside, get some stones together, and build an altar? You know, did anybody bring any animals today? We can maybe find something. Should we have a barbecue? Is that what we should do? Is that how we should apply this? Well, I think we kind of understand, uh, I don't think that's what we should do. You're right, that's not what we should do. How is this command that God tells him to do that different than, say, a command like, honor your father and mother? We would read that and we say, yeah we, yeah, we should probably do that. How are those things different? Well, let's just take a, a little bit of time here and think about how do we apply Scripture? How, do, how should we do that? So when we come to a passage of Scripture, any passage of Scripture, the first thing we should do is try to understand what it meant in its own time and context. And that's what we've been doing. Thinking about what is an altar? What is a peace offering? What are these promises? So thinking about it in its own time and context. What is it saying to the people who originally heard it? Then we take time. Then we find what are the principles of this that apply in every time and context? What are the universal principles? Then we apply those principles to our own situation and our own time and context. Now, in doing that, there can be greater or lesser distance from the original context to our context. So if you take honor your father and mother, for example. Okay, what's the universal principle there? Um, Honor your father and mother, right? It's very short distance. It's universally applicable. Then how does that apply in my particular situation specifically to me? That can be different. Maybe you're a college student today. Maybe honoring your father and mother today means you pick up the phone, yeah, and dial the phone, and you push the buttons, and you actually call them, or FaceTime, whatever, and talk to them, because they want to hear from you. That may be how you honor your father and mother. Maybe if you're older, maybe that means for you, honoring your father and mother is taking them to a doctor's appointment this week, caring for them. That is how we apply that scripture. So that's a situation like honoring your father and mother. Okay, that's pretty easy. What about building an altar and writing the law on it? Is that what we need to do? Well, there's greater distance there. We can't just apply it. We have to find what is the universal principle. So what about something like the universal principle of obedience to God in the way we worship him? What about the universal principle of the importance and centrality of God's word to our life and our worship? Those are things we can apply in our lives. So kind of summary, you have to say, what is it saying in its own time and context? This takes a lot of work. We spend a lot of time in this short passage of scripture to understand what is it actually saying? Because you can't get the principle until you understand what it's saying. You find the principle, figure out how much distance there is there, and then apply it to our own situation. Now, in this case, Joshua 8, we have to apply it. We have to move through Christ who is the true Israel. We have to understand in our application that he, Jesus Christ, is the literal descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the true Israel, the one who fulfilled perfectly all of the law. And he established the new covenant with us through his blood, by which you and I are grafted into him and all the promises of God. That's the context that we have to move through. So how do we apply this? We see in their lives, God's unfolding plan to fulfill his promises. How should we live in light of that? What should we do as we live and we see God's unfolding promises in our lives through Christ? Here's a couple of things. We should be careful to obey God in the way we worship him. God gets to decide what worship is acceptable to him. We don't get to decide that. Think about it this way. If you went, let's say you go to the grocery store this afternoon, put all the stuff in the bag, you scan it all, it's a self-checkout thing. The number pops up and you're like, ah, 175 bucks? I don't want to pay that. How about seven? Sounds good to me. Here you go. You put seven, cram seven dollars into the machine and walk off with the groceries. Are they just going to be okay with it? Just be okay with it. 
they're not going to be okay with it. Don't do that. By the way, I give advice, like these stories sometimes. This is like one of those things. Do, please do not try this at home or at Wise or Wegmans or wherever. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with worship of God. He gets to decide. Our response is obedience. How should we worship him? For us, that worship is through union with Jesus Christ. Friends, you realize not all roads lead to God. People say that. All roads lead to God. There's many paths. They all lead to God. No, they don't. God gets to decide. And he has decided the way to worship him is through his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to be obedient to that. Another example for this is he calls us when we worship him. He calls us together as a people. A local body of Christ gathered together as a people. I don't get to say, God, it should just be okay with you for me to sit at home by myself and not be connected to a people and worship you in my my living room by myself. I can say that, but it's disobedient to God. He calls us to worship together with a local body of Christ. That's how he has determined our worship should be. And we need to be obedient to him. That's one principle. Another principle, we should keep God's word central to worship. God's word central to worship, not experiences. Experience is not central to the Christian life. There is a segment within Christianity, and frankly, it actually goes beyond. It moves through different theological backgrounds. There's a segment of Christianity that I call experientialism, where it's like the Christian life is just one good experience after another. We just chase these good experiences. That's not the focus on the Christian life. And it's in from, from those who are like, well, you know, maybe today somebody will get healed. All the way to maybe today somebody will get saved. And if that happens, then that was a good day. If it doesn't happen, we're doing something wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I want people to get saved. We want that. But that is not central to the Christian life and to Christian worship. Our focus is not, as Christians, should not be, did something happen today? When we gather together, did something special happen? Did I feel really good today? Did somebody get saved? Did somebody get healed? Is that what, that's not what our focus should be. And I went to a church one time and they actually had in the foyer, they had one of those digital signs very prominently. And it said, it had a sign on the top. It said number of souls saved in this church this year. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting thing to focus on. Again, don't hear a pastor doesn't want people to get saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's not our focus. If today nobody gets healed in this service, nobody gets saved in this service, maybe nobody has a good time. It was terrible. If, but even if that is the case, if God's word has been heard and honored, we have been successful. Because that's central to our lives, central to your lives as individuals. God's word is central. Another principle, we should recognize that God is blessing the nations. Foreigners. And we were foreigners. We were foreigners from God. Not a part of the promise, but God made us a part of the promise through Christ. There is no place in the Christian family for ethnic superiority, cultural superiority. That's rampant in our world, but should not be present in us. Because God is blessing the nations. God should be bringing people to us. That outside of Christ, we would have nothing in common. We would not be friends. But in Christ, we are one. And lastly, and I think maybe most prominently, we should celebrate and rejoice the blessings that God has given us in Christ. Do you realize we have so many blessings and so many promises that God has given us? You know, in Joshua 8, they, they pronounce blessings and curses. We are in a covenant with Christ where he was cursed for us. In the covenant that we're in, there are no curses because Christ is the curse. Look at Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is any, everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
He is the curse. As we sit here today, there's just blessing and promise. As I was thinking about this, how do we respond? I wanted to just do something a little bit different. In just a moment, I want to have a stand and just take a moment to celebrate the promises and blessings that we have in Christ. Now, if you're not a believer here today, we are glad you're here. This is, you should be here. This is a place for you. I want you to feel welcomed. I want you to know you're, that this is where you should be. But as we do this, I would just encourage you, if you're not a believer in Christ, you can just stand with us, but just listen. Because if you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ, these are not promises that apply to you. These are promises that apply to those who are in Christ. So if you would, if you would just stand together, and we're just going to read. Let's read together these promises that are on the slides here. So just read with me as we do this. Through Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled with God. We have been united with Jesus Christ. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been freed from sin. We have been rescued from death. We have been delivered from the spiritual forces of darkness. We have been transferred from darkness into his marvelous light. We have been granted access to the Father. We have been cleansed. We have been transformed. We have been adopted as God's children. We have been given a hope and a future. We have peace with God. We have a citizenship in heaven. We have a place prepared for us. We have the promise of victory over death. We have the promise of eternal life. We have the promise of the resurrection of our bodies. We have the promise of rewards. We have the promise of rest. We have the promise of victory. We have the promise of glory. We have God with us now and forevermore. We are loved by God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have been sanctified. We are Christ's bride. We are Christ's body. We are the family of God. We are the temple of the living God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are seated with Christ. Our sin has been forgiven. Our debt has been paid. Our shame has been taken away. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our Lord and King. The Holy Spirit is our seal and guarantee. The one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our God. Amen. 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 And I'm going to pray. If you would just remain standing, the worship team is going to come up. And we're going to respond to this by beholding our God, by worshiping him. And so would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you for those promises. Lord, we could have listed even more than that of what you have won for us in Christ Jesus. None of that deserved. None of that earned. All of that a free gift through your sacrifice. Lord, as we come, would we behold you, would we worship you in spirit and truth, that you would be lifted up and honored among us. We thank you, Lord, we worship you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.